Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1191, with guest Ike Ellis. Recorded Friday, August 28th, 2015. That's right. Uh-huh. We bad. It's .NET Rocks. <laughs> Is that what we are? Okay. It's Don and Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're here. Uh, Ike Ellis is here. We're going to be talking about SQL Server Continuous Integration, and that's going to be a lot of fun. And this is definitely uh, a topic I need to learn more about. So. Mm-hmm. It's been a pain point for a while. Yeah. And, uh, well, what can I say? Things are really cooking along here. We're uh, going to be Playing a little bit, the band, the Franklin Brothers band, playing a little bit. You had Mr. Uh, Schofield back. Had Mr. Schofield back, back in August, yeah, August 14th, and we were, I wrote a song for you. It was really cr- crazy how it worked out, but still working on it as of this recording, which is August 28th. Yes, I have a lovely mix down of it, but I, I could see you've got more more you want to do. Yeah, and more songs I want to write, too. It's, sure. Uh, it feels like a pretty fertile time. Anyway, Mr. Campbell. Let's uh, roll the music, because I got something that you probably know all about. Oh. All right, buddy, what is it? Auto Runs. Auto Runs? Auto Runs for Windows by Mark Racinovich. Oh, so, wow, okay. Just bingle Auto Runs, because all the tinyurl.com uh, aliases have been taken, and they, <laughs> they point nowhere, which is crazy. At least if you can reuse one, you know, have it work. But uh, uh, just Bingle Auto Runs for Windows. And uh, this is one of Mark Racinovich's tools. Of course, he wrote all these great tools Sys for Windows. internals and all kinds of important things. Yeah, yep, exactly. He's so got this- a new title now. He's a CTO at Microsoft. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, he's really, really smart. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this is uh, basically shows you all about the programs that start up, that run when Windows starts up. And there's right. so many ways that they can do that because, you know, we have years of, uh, of ways to do this going on. Uh, the startup folder, run, run once, and other registry keys. Yep. It finds shell extensions, toolbars, browser helper objects, win logon notifications, auto start services. It goes, uh, it's just very, very complete. And so it gives you a really good snapshot of what's running when you boot up Windows and why does it take so long anyway? <laughs> <laughs> well, and these days with the latest versions of Windows and modern hardware, the, technically your machine boots really quickly, but all this auto run stuff is still running while your UI is in theory up. Right. You know? So fully up and 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 you know usable two different things it's even harder to tell these days yeah it really is so i figured that would be good for uh for you and for this show little it-ish it's something to know about what's going on in your machine yeah it will give you chills yeah just do yourself a favor when you run it and you see all these apps don't freak out don't freak out start bingling them right and you'll find out that most of them are actually windows related it's okay yeah and then maybe there's a couple of spywares in there surprise surprise (laughs) (laughs) good one dude yeah all right, who's talking to us today, Richard? I uh, grabbed a comment off of show 1079, the one we did with Enrico Campidoglio. Oh, yeah. When we were at NDC London, and we yep. were talking about continuous delivery in databases, which, you know, topic for today and, yep. and a topic we've been dr- drilling at for a while. And Barrett Blake had this great comment. He says, uh, by far the best tool I've found for handling database migrations is Fluid Migrator by Sean Chambers. Neat. It's on it's GitHub. It's open source. You script your database changes in C-sharp code as part of your application development. The database change scripts can then be run as executables from the command line or as part of the build process. 
Team City's great for this. With each script, you can also code the rollback for that particular migration, making it easy to roll back to a previous state if needed. Mm. You can tag your deployments any way you like. I tend to use the tags dev, QA, test, and prod. And then as each script is ready for each environment, the new tag gets added in the script applied to the next build. Nice. And your changes are tracked in your source code system as code as integrated as part of your source code. It has saved me a great deal of time over the last couple of years since I started using it. Very good. So there you go. A guy who's taken on the problem and come up with a creative solution. I will include a link to Fluent Migrator in the show notes. So if you want to take a look at it, you can. And Barrett, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of the social medias we post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. You can comment there. We'll read it on the show and we'll send you a mug. And that brings me to introducing our guest today, Ike Ellis. Ike is a five-time Microsoft MVP for SQL Server. In March, he co-wrote Developing Azure Solutions with Zorner Tejada and Michelle Rubustamante. He's spoken at SQL Pass Summit and TechEd. For his day job, he's a partner in a San Diego-based software studio, Crafting Bytes. Welcome, Ike. Thanks. I'm super excited to be here. Actually, Carl, can I tell you a quick story? Sure. Okay, so I am a struggling early 20s hack in the, in the 90s. Okay. And I'm just trying to learn VB6 and COM <laughs> and DCOM. And every time I search for an answer, this website, Carl and Gary's, comes up. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't even... I don't care who Carl is or who Gary is. I just know that I check this website and often they have the answer I'm looking for. Yeah. And then .NET releases, and I cannot describe how overwhelming .NET was for a hack in the early 2000s. Like for me, I just attributes and data tables and disconnected record sets. And oh, yeah. Just everything was so different for me. And then I, the guy from Carl and Gary starts a podcast. <laughs> you know, I just hear about it and I think, well, this can't hurt. And it just like totally opened up my world. It, it like introduced me to these heroes of people I didn't even know existed, like <laughs> Scott Stanfield and Mark Miller and Michelle Rubustamante and, yeah. and, and Scott Guthrie. Yeah. And so if you mapped my career, you could basically map you unknowingly mentoring me wow. through the whole process. And, and now, like you just said, I co-wrote a book with Michelle Bustamante. I heard her. How many a decade and a half ago on your first shows. Yeah. And um, she's going to be thrilled you said that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And you too, Richard, like I'd hear you talking in the background and then, then co-hosting the show. Like I just thought, wouldn't it be awesome to be smart like these guys? Uh Like I wish I was smart like these guys. So, Oh my God. Did you get that check I sent you? (laughs) (laughs) So I got to tell you, and I'm going to be honest right up, right up front. I am nervous to be talking to you guys right now. And you have to know, I talk to thousands of people. I don't get nervous at all. I haven't been this nervous since I called that hot girl in high school. (laughs) (laughs) Well, cheers to you, my friend. Thank you very much for sharing that story. Cheers. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, you don't hear that. You don't hear that too often in my town, you know? I'm known as the guy who plays guitar and plays darts and hangs out in the pub. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of development going on in the small town where I live. But it's very cool to to hear stories like that. It just reminds me about uh, how vast this this ecosystem really is. I was a Carl and Gary's fan back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. We all, we all if we built software and we knew our way around uh, in VB and we knew our way around the Internet... You were on Carol and Gary's. Yeah, that's true. The question is, what search tool were you using back then, Ike? Alta that- Vista, perhaps. Yeah. Uh-huh. I think Yahoo maybe might Yahoo? have been in there. Yeah, I was a web crawler fan myself. Yeah, Yahoo was the the thing that I modeled calling Carl and Gary's after because it was just a series of categorized lists and there wasn't so much that it needed a searchable database, you know? That didn't mean anything back then, did it? Yeah. Much less, how the heck do you index it anyway? That was voodoo. Yeah. Well, Gary did the back end stuff, and it was all Perl and whatever. So it was voodoo. Yeah, it was total voodoo. (laughs) (laughs) I just wrote the HTML. Easy. Yeah. So let's talk about SQL CI. What's on your mind these days? Well, you know... The database has always been like a dark spot in software development. And the reason why I know that is because 
I've been in so many meetings where they say, we would like to rewrite the database. And I think, mm. well, why? I mean, you've got a thousand users on it. People, you know, it's huge. It's 150 gigs. Why would you rewrite it? And they said, well, we didn't know what we were doing 10 years ago. Mm. And, and now, like now, we do know what we're doing. And so if we could go back and fix our, our mistakes, we would. And you ask yourself, well, why weren't you fixing your mistakes along the way? And it's because the database is like this mystical, tightly coupled creature for the whole organization. Yeah, right? you, they, you, you, you change a field and the whole thing blows up, man. <laughs> things that you didn't even know, reports and ETL packages. And, and there, you, you want to find out where, you know, if you, there are developers at your organization that you didn't know actually work there, just change a database field. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Let's find out how important this is. <laughs> your, phone, your phone be ringing off the wall. What was that line you said, Richard? You said, as an IT guy, I got lonely, so I just turn off the server. Yes. Phone, rings, phone rings every time. Every time. <laughs> <laughs> so, and we know, like, we are terrible at predicting the future. And when you create schema, that's exactly what you're doing is you're predicting the future. You're saying, how will this app be used in the future? Right. And And we're... We're awful at it. And the reason why I know is because of how many databases I look at where there's like 500 columns in a table and uh, only 30 have data in it, right? The rest are dark. There's uh, dark areas of the, you know, tables that are empty or they have data from 2007. Yeah, or they're just orphaned, right? Le left by the wayside. Columns, too. Ask, well, orphan columns. Yeah, well, why didn't you clean that up? I mean, you're not using it. Clean it up. Let's weed the garden here a little bit. And they think, oh, every time we do that, like 16 things break. Yeah. Like, so, so it would be great if we had an, the ability to kind of go into this dark spot that makes us dread and fearful and like change things and get those changes into production. And the reality is the only way to change the database and feel good about it is to do it in very small increments very frequently. Interesting. That's a, that's a, uh, an Adrian Cockcroft line, right? Whatever is painful, do it often until it isn't painful anymore. <laughs> that's right. That's it's a good, it's a great line. Dave Farley quoted him in the last, um, pipelines conference too. And it's a great line and it's absolutely true with the database. Yeah. And right. so what you have in the database is you get additive changes. People love to add tables. Yep. They love to add columns, but they really don't like to rename things. They don't, you know, I had, I had a database once for the university decided to change what a student was and instead call them learners. But in the oh. database, it was student everywhere. And it, they had changed it four years ago. And they said, well, we change it everywhere, but we don't change in the database. And it made things like lineage and trying to discover where things were like super difficult. We have that issue now. We started, I started, I built the database for our back end, right? So, and I started with a sponsors table. And then it turned out that what we really wanted was an ads table, not a sponsor's table, because they were one-to-one -one with ads, you know, because I, you know, we were just thinking, you know, how many sponsors are we possibly going to get when we started this stupid show, right? So, <laughs> you know, not that one sponsor is going to have several ads. So then if essentially the UI turned into ads, but in the, on the back end, the table is still called sponsors. And we get that kind of disconnect, you know, and you're right. right. It's like nobody wants to touch it. You know, as long as we know what that little mapping is in our brains, it's fine. Right. <laughs> and we're right. the only ones that use it. So it really doesn't matter. <laughs> I kind of liken changing the database to a high wire act, right? If you yeah. had a high wire 50 meters in the air and there was no net underneath you, like how quickly would you walk across that high wire? Not too fast. But, but if you had a net underneath you that was not only safe, like it protected you 100% of the time, but it was actually fun to fall into. Like you fall off the wire and then the net catches you and it, it just kind of rockets you right back up on the wire at the exact spot you fell off of. Now, how quickly would you run across? I've been doing you know? it all the time just for the experience of learning what works and what doesn't. Right. And so that's what compelled me toward um, what we call DLM or database lifecycle management and you know, continuous delivery with the database. That's why I look at all of these products and I, you know, read and study and I teach it now. I go around the country um, speaking in New York and Philadelphia on this topic. I spoke at SQL Pass last year on it. And it's because um, we don't want these black spots where we don't want to change. We want change to be fun. We want to embrace it. And, and it's possible, but we just have to put a little effort into it. Okay. I mean, is... 
the same way that we have application lifecycle management, although I'm always angry when we talk about application and don't include database. Now we have database lifecycle management. Is it the same thing? Is it the same iteration? Like what's different about it? It's absolutely the same like mechanisms, but there's always added complexity with the database. So if we talk about ALM being like source control and testing and continuous integration and, you know, triggering builds and then some type of deployment method um, into different environments that are, that is repeatable and consistent, right? That's easy to do with software development because we're essentially doing files, whether they're CS files or JS files or, you know, DLLs, they're, Essentially, you're packaging up files and you're and you're copying them or you're just replacing them. them. Yeah, you're mm. writing yeah, over replacing. the old ones. I found when I did that with data, it made people really angry. <laughs> right, people don't like that with data. Right, well, not only <laughs> that, but there's so much of it. Right, you know, when you're when you're doing versioning of an app, how much do you really have? Right, yeah, but with with data, you sometimes pre-provision tables to be huge, so it's not not all that easy to version. Oh, exactly. Like if you have a 150 gig table, like adding a column, you're going to lock it Yep. and and you're going to be there for a while. So you have to schedule downtime to do it. So, and it's central and there's no like redundancy. We have a terrible time scaling out the database. So it's not like with a web server, we can take it out of the, out of the load balancer, do whatever we're going to do with it and put it back in with the database. Like we have to think about what we're doing. Right. And even more critical than that, the path of a change matters. Hmm. So if I look at one table and say, okay, I want to overwrite this table in production, if if the column names are different, it's not going to know to preserve the data. Mm. It's just going to delete one column and create a new... There's, there's plenty of places where the path of the change matters. Like, for instance, if I want to add a column and, it, and I don't want it to be null and I don't want to give it a default... I have to first add the column with a null value, hydrate it with whatever values I think should be in there, and then remove the nullability. So you can see like yeah. that path to the change, it's important to kind of capture that and know what you're doing. And mm-hmm. you know, SQL Server in particular has always had these little you know, quirks of things that you can't do. I remember in the old days you couldn't you shouldn't have uh named a store procedure with what was it, SP underscore? Because yep. internally there was some sort of magic flag, magic flag, or whatever that yeah, and, and everything run very much slower. If it you was actually that. kind of a hidden thing that where if you if you did use sp underscore, you could execute that store procedure from any database. Since so oh. people use that as a trick for a long time, but then you're like, it's a global namespace problem, just like in JavaScript, where you just yeah. pose yourself. Just little quirks like that you have to remember, and you're you're talking about the order of things mattering. Yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Stackify. Stackify fully integrates application performance management with error and log management in one platform. Capture performance issues as they happen without having to wait for them to reoccur. A cost-effective and lightweight agent provides you code-level insights. Try Stackify now for free and get your copy of the hilarious Developers Against Humanity card game once you activate your account. Use the link bit.ly slash netrocks to get your free game. One of the things, and we've talked about this before, that we've sort of gotten to in thinking in terms of database changes is that they're sort of, they, they wrap around an application deployment. There's a bunch of stuff you want to do to the database before you deploy the new version of the app to sort of include new columns, new tables, things like that. And then you deploy the new version of the app. And then you need a cleanup phase where you can sort of, you know, you were talking about, okay, I want to change this column name from this to this. If I just change it, I lose all the data. So my pre-step is make the new column and even populate it. Then I update the application so it's now using new column. And then the post-step is remove the old column. Right. And so... It's even more complicated if we violate a microservices rule. You know, microservices are getting really popular and people love the architecture. And and there's one rule that I I really like, and that is that it's one service per database, meaning we get a lot more of these little tiny databases that have single purpose in them. And we don't have this like one giant transactional data store because we found like large things are hard to change. And if, if I have five apps and even worse than that, if I have applications written by a team that isn't in my chain of command, 
updating the same database, you've essentially tightly coupled many, many choke points to one database and made that database next to impossible to change. Right. And so if we do the microservices way where we have like small databases per, you know, per service, then we have a database that is portable. Like we can, if we need to scale it up, we can put it on its own server or its own VM, or we can give that VM more resources for just that database. We have a database, if it's small, when it's portable, we can easily get it to developers or not. And that's another kind of like, like I, t- I taught a class yesterday in New York, in Manhattan, and, and I asked, who here is developing on a shared database? And it was shocking to me, like the whole class raised their hands and said, we are all developing on shared databases. And would, would, would you guys want to share like source files to, you know, if we were all writing an application, would you want to share C-sharp files with me? But no, I don't, I don't. But it's the nature. Classes. Ah, stop. Go away. But it's the nature of databases to be shared, isn't it? Well, no, I don't think it is. Not in development, it is. Oh, in not the, in development. In re- yeah. Yeah. In development, you want every developer to have their own database. And, and it, the reason why they're sharing them, essentially, is because they're too big. And the reason why they're too big is they're basically taking a production database and they're copying it to... De- so if production is uh, 200 gigs, they're going to copy 200 gigs to development and nobody wants to put 200 gigs on their development laptop, so they right. all just decide to share the central oh, server. I see. And- well, it, it's, I, that's, I mean, I understand why you want to use production data. You're trying to get as realistic as possible. I won't even talk about the PII issues there, but is this actually a good idea? Should you be using proper sample databases? Absolutely should. So the problem, yeah, exactly. They can't recreate the problem that they're having in production if they don't have production data because production data has a mind of its own. It does what it wants to do, not what you want it to do. Production data so, is dirty is what it is. It has dirty. nulls where there shouldn't be nulls. You right. Know, it's just like that's what happens. That's what real data looks like. Right. And the reality is it's, the database is 200 gigs because they have, you know, 175 gigs of blob storage in there. <laughs> like they've got stuff. <laughs> yeah. Make the bad man stop. Right. And so they sh- really should. Yeah, absolutely. They should pare that down so that it's portable. They should they should clean it so that we don't have real credit card numbers, real social security numbers, real, you know, real addresses, real patient data. And then, yeah, every developer should have their own. What they'll see is they'll see a huge productivity boost if they're not doing some type of locking where they're like, nobody touch this stored procedure because I'm in it right now. Like nobody wants to be communicating with their team like that. You, you yeah. want to be in the zone, writing code, working hard. And and we're talking about just best practices. We haven't even gotten to the the continuous delivery tooling that's wrapped around SQL Server now to kind of help you with this process of getting database changes into production as quick as possible. Sure. But at the same time, there's, you know, one of the upsides to sharing is if you when you don't share and everybody has their own database, then you have the great merge crisis of here's all the changes everybody made, where do they intersect? Right. That's a great segue, right? Because what we want to be doing is integrating those changes as quickly as possible. And that's what that tooling allows us to do. Like, remember those days in the 90s when I was a hack? And <laughs> and I used to go to doing. Carl and Gary's and you know, those yeah. guys here, like, let me fake it. <laughs> those were great days for me. Because, like, let's say that you guys are my customer and you guys want an application. You guys say, hey, Ike code this. And I'm like, okay, I code it. And then I flip my laptop around and I say like this. And Richard says, no, that's not what I said at all. Do it again. <laughs> and so I flip my laptop around and I go like this. And you're like, yeah, now you're getting it. Do that. And then once you say it's done, boom, in production. Right. And you love this because <laughs> as a customer of mine, yeah, I'm the greatest hack on the planet because every time you ask for something, I can show you, you can say no or yes or no or yes. And then once I have it, boom, in production. And that kind of cowboy method of, of delivering value is super compelling, except when we're like a year into the project and you say, hey, Ike, do this, da, 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 like this, yes, deploy it. And I break 20 things. Right. And, well, as long and as, as there's only I'm, ever one app, everything's fine. Right, right. Or my app's just too large. I don't even know all the parts of it anymore. Yeah. Right. So, or there's more than one person working on it. Right, exactly. And so all of a sudden you put the brakes on me and you say, Ike, stop making changes because you break things too much. And the minute you put the brakes on me, now we're going to slow down delivery of value to a point that just like doesn't, it's not fun anymore. It's not like we have to have meetings and we have to have a test environment and we have to have a, another like 
QA environment and we have to like test our deploys and I'm doing all this manually and I'm lucky to be deploying even once a month. And so what continuous deployment says and continuous value delivery says is we want to make these database changes like the cowboy method. We want them to be fast. We want to be constantly running tests and integrating and deploying, but, and we want you to feel great about it. And so we're going to wrap these engineering methods around it to improve stability and quality. And we're going to drive towards quality every step of the way, but we're going to release, you know, base hundreds of times a day. I know that sounds ridiculous, but many of these organizations that are doing it are literally releasing so much. They can't even count how many times a day they're releasing. So wow. go ahead and jump. <laughs> <laughs> so how do they not break things? Right. Okay. So let's start at the beginning. Let's just talk about source control because now the team has gotten bigger. I'm not a hack anymore. I got to communicate with my team and I need to know who's changing what. And we're going to use source control as the version of the truth. The problem with databases and source control is that database developers on SQL Server really like using SQL Server Management Studio. And they don't necessarily write code in Visual Studio. If they did write code in Visual Studio, they could use the SQL Server data tools that will help us like write stored procedures and get them into TFS or get them into Subversion or Git or wherever they are. Um, and that works great, except that 90% of database developers don't use Visual Studio. And so they tend to use Management Studio, and the tooling for that is not as great. It, the integration with source control is not as great. So Redgate released a tool called Redgate Source Control, and it integrates Management Studio with Git and Subversion and Perforce and, um, and, and TFS. You can continue using TFS, um, but if you want to stay in Management Studio, you just have to kind of use this little plugin. So th these source control systems, either both SQL Server data tools and um, Redgate source control, they use what's called a declarative method of source control. And, and the declarative method is like this. It's like, like at some point when I had database changes when I was a hack, I would like run some type of schema compare tool, whether it was like a depth SQL or um, Redgate schema compare or um, or Visual Studio had one. I mean, there were a lot of different tools out there that did schema compare. And I would compare my development database with a production database or, a, or an integration database, and it would generate a script of changes automatically for me. And then I would just run that script in the environment that I was deploying in. And that's great. Like 90% of the time, it's great. It's great for store procedures and views and triggers and functions, but it's terrible for tables because of the data problem we right. talked about earlier where you lose right. the data. Right. And, and so... This is why in everything except SQL Server, the migration method, which I think you had a guest on earlier that you talked about earlier, um, kind of took over, which that migration method preserves the path of the change. And um, products like Flyway and ReadyRoll really focus on making those migration scripts really easy to deploy. So when you talk about migration, what exactly do you mean? Well... If you and I were all on one database development team and we had a change, we would create a folder that we would call like 1.0. And every time we had a database change, we would put a script in that folder. And if I was the first one, I'd have a script called 1, alter table, add this column. And then if Carl said, well, I've got a change, I'm going to just create an index, he would say, 2, create this index. And if Richard said, no, I want to remove something, remove a store procedure, he'd say, 3, remove the procedure. And then when it came time to actually release software, somebody would go through like script numbered one through 153 and they would like get rid of all the duplication. You know, we might have overwritten the same store procedure five times. So they might get rid of the first four and they might take one table. You don't want to be altering a table five different times because it's really locking and takes a long time. So right. they might take a bunch of changes and kind of condense them down and then they'll release an upgrade script. They'll say, look, if you're going to go from 1.0 to 1.1, this is the list of database changes all compiled in one script. And that way, if you wanted to go from 1.0 to 1.4, you would just run these four scripts in a row and it would bring you up to 1.4. And people were doing that by hand. This migration method is what Oracle DBAs use and MySQL and Postgres and, and SQL Server DBAs for a long time. They would use the exact same method of managing database change, but it was cumbersome. It was like, 
we have to each write these scripts and we have to, you know, developers don't like extra work. It's also very state dependent, isn't it? Like, uh, it, it, you know what I'm saying? It is state dependent and it's state dependent in a lot of areas where it doesn't need to be. For instance, with stored procedures, we know it's the last one that wins. Like we don't care about how we got to the latest stored procedure. We just want the last one. Right. And with, with tables where we have state that we're preserving, then, then, um, that does matter. And, and if there's any kind of nuance different in any of the environments that we're deploying to, we, we have the ability to lose data if we're not really, really careful. So it requires like carefully, meticulously going over these scripts and making sure that we know that they're accurate. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. You know it. It's time to select star from DNR jokes where laugh count is greater than one. <laughs> what? One. Zero? <laughs> Crap. I don't understand SQL. <laughs> Maybe you can help me debug my query group by funny <laughs> <laughs> it's actually time to give away a music to code by video and audio set to one lucky member of the dotnet rocks fan club but let me tell you about it music to code by is a set of 25 minute pomodoro sized quiet and groovy instrumentals that are specifically designed to promote focus they'll get you into a state of flow and keep you there and we have uh, seven or eight of them out now so .NET Rocks fans are being more productive with music to code by as are kids doing homework and trying to sleep and stuff. I'm getting all <laughs> sorts of great reports from how this is helping people just to relax and, and stay focused. That's really cool. So see what all the fuss is about. Go to mtcb.pwop.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Caleb Dell. Uh, congratulations, Caleb. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Caleb just won the Music to Code by audio and video documentary, and uh, that's the first three tracks. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, and answer a few questions and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .net Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And now, Ike, it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, sir, what would you buy? That is a great question. And, you know, can somebody, like, tell me when Oculus Rift is finally going to be released? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God knows. There's just a new article out uh, from uh, Adrian with Adrian Carmack and it talking about Oculus Rift being owned by Facebook and just him still being deeply involved in it. It's, I don't know. Same, hey, put HoloLens in that can, too. It's like, when are these products going to be real? I yeah. feel like these guys are all hanging out with George R.R. R. Martin while he's writing his new book, and they're just not getting anything done. <laughs> I mean, my in favor of Martin is, A, obscene gestures when you ask him, and B, he's actually writing it, right? Like he's just take The guy takes his time. I just don't know what they're doing over there. Yeah, I don't know either. They had the developer kit two years ago, and I keep waiting for them to release it. But really, if I had $5,000, I'm going to be kind of the anti-nerd, which is unlike me, and say I would like to get a Honda Grom. What's which a is, Honda Grom? What is that? It is a pocket rocket that, like, you know, crotch rockets, the big sport bikes you kill yourself on. Right. Yeah, yeah. So a pocket rocket's like 125cc, but it performs like a performance bike. And, but you have total control of the bike, but it can't really go faster than 45 miles an hour. Ah, does it sound like this? Whee! That's exactly what it does. And, <laughs> and they're new. They're brand new. And they're hugely popular. And I was walking down downtown San Diego, and I saw a Grom gang of like 40 Groms all tooling around <laughs> oh, the city streets. Man. And I just thought I really needed to be a part it's of like that. It's like a chainsaw with wheels. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Heck of a lot less expensive than the big super bikes, though. That's I'm I'm inside my five thousand dollar range. Well in, yeah, yeah, sure. Because yeah. you spend a lot more than that on a you know seven hundred fifty, you know the VSX, the old Honda super bike. That's that's fifteen thousand bucks these days. Mm-hmm. Right, and it goes two hundred miles an hour, which is not healthy for yeah. me. Well, it's great at converting humans into strawberry paste, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a donor cycles, they call them, for a reason. Well, now i got to put a rating on this show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What were we talking about before I so rudely interrupted you, sir? 
Well, actually, you talking about your caller just now reminded me that I sent you an email that Richard read on the air, and you sent me a .NET Rocks clock in an early episode. Oh, the clocks. Yeah, that's when right. I was The a- clock? Holy man, yeah. that must have been a while ago. Yeah, I still it have was. one hanging up in the office. Yeah. Too funny. That must yeah. have been before my time. I think the whole... I've a- only been doing this show for... 10 years. <laughs> yeah, that was the age of Rory Blythe. That's there you for go. Sure. So, yeah. yeah in fact, I'm I th- being the new guy. We only ever did mugs. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you my the show number because my question was really dumb. Oh, all right. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. So, um, we were talking about source control, actually, and we were talking about the migration method. And really, when the source control vendors, all, you know, either they're open source projects or commercial vendors, they either did the declarative method, which was we're going to compare two states and then give you the different script, or they just made the migration method where you wrote one change script at a time much easier, and they wrapped their tooling around just making sure that that was an easy thing for you to do, and then compiling them together was an easy thing to do. So when you look, when you pick a source control product, and and to me, I love all of them. They're all much better than not using source control. Um, whether you use like Apex SQL or Redgate source control or, or you use SQL Server data tools, you want to kind of decide whether or not you're augmenting an existing migrations method and you want to make that better. Maybe you'll like ReadyRoll or you want to decide if you primarily do the declarative method and then you're going to want to use SQL Server data tools or the Redgate method. But make that decision and then move forward and get your objects in source control as quick as you can. How do you feel about the SQL Server data tools? They sort of bundle with Visual Studio. They're getting better. I think I think if you are a developer who stays in Visual Studio, then you'll either choose that or you'll choose Ready Roll. And and you'll be very happy. But if you're if you're already not in Visual Studio, I mean, you and I love Visual Studio, but we've been using it for a couple of decades now. Yeah. Yeah. The the threshold to decide I'm going to use Visual Studio is not a small threshold. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So once you get past that, database objects, if you've already using source control, your next step is to think about stored procedure, functional, and function testing, writing unit tests, which is, by the way, something that developers in the database have pretty much, they say, I'm just going to do that in C Sharp because it's too hard to do that in SQL. And the reason why it's too yeah, it's the reason why it's hard is because in SQL, we don't have debug.assert. We don't have you know, any of the kind of in-unit apparatus around it. And then there's an open source project that has gotten hugely popular um, called T-SQL T. Mm-hmm. And it's a framework that we can install in SQL Server that gives us all sorts of kind of um, components that help us along in writing tests. Like, um, well, one thing is if I test an insert and then I test a record count, that test by nature is not repeatable because every time I insert new records, I'm going to be adding to the record count. And then, right. you know, right. So, so T SQL T says, I roll back every test upon success. Like, nice. Right. And so that way we've got a repeatable test framework that's easy, or it, it will do things like fake tables for us so that we're not actually inserting records into a real table in case we need to use it later. It will all sorts of neat things that, um, Sebastian did a really great job writing T-SQL-T, and it's great to use it. So I, I'm a huge proponent of that. If you, you can go to tsqlt.org and download it. It's got great documentation. But if you want deterministic behavior like this, this is all the more reason that everybody has to have their own database. As soon as you do a shared database and you're trying to do that kind of determinism, somebody's going to change something behind you, and boom, you know, your test breaks. Exactly. Yep, exactly. Yeah. In fact... You can actually, with some of the tooling, you can put static data in source control so that that static data is reliably testable. Um, so sometimes they'll have like some scripts that they put in different environments to make sure that those tests can run in those environments. Yeah, I mean, I, that makes sense. And, and it's the, the biggest, biggest challenge that I run into, and it's one of the things I got to enjoy from the SQL Server data tools, although admittedly, there are other products out there, Redgates makes them with SQL Compare and stuff, is this, here is the schema I want. Just make the database look like that and don't break anything along the way. Yeah, right. Because, I mean, I have been the shepherd of the migration script. And just trying to figure out what state your database actually is in, like what version of the database are we on? That's just not, there's no easy numbers. That's not obvious. It isn't obvious, no. But, okay, 
you've brought on a whole bunch of topics there. And let me talk just two of them. I want to point out of what you said. The first one is, I just want the database in the state I want it in is right. a little easier said than done for things like column renames or table renames. Now, yep. the Redgate tool has a cool feature that they just added, and that is it does the declarative method, the method that you like, right? But it will also like do these mini migrations in something that's too hard. Like if we want to rename the customer's table to the California customer's table, um, you can write a script to do that and not lose any data. And you can tell Redgate, Instead of source control check-in 182, I want you to replace that change with this script so that when the next developer gets latest, I don't want you to do that declarative method. I want you to run this script instead. So right. it's like 99% of the time it's declarative mm. until you need a migration and then you can use the migration. But once again, you get to this determinism problem. I the, the goal that I got to long ago before all these tools ever got there is that every one of my scripts was deterministic which is to say I could run it repeatedly and it wouldn't keep making changes, right? You yeah, run it once, so it made great. the change. You run it again, it doesn't make any changes. It just goes, yep, I'm good. And that's, yeah, you that's need some intelligence in your script to sort of assess, these are the changes I'm going to make. Are they already made? Oh, if they're made, I'm not going to do anything. So Flyway and ReadyRoll do things like that. And the way they do it is they keep track of the schema changes in a metadata table so that it knows what script was ran and not to run it again. See, so I don't trust that as much as a script smart enough that even if I run it inappropriately, it doesn't hurt anything. Right. So that I don't trust. You know, I hear that all the time from DBAs in this oh, environment. No. We're afraid. Trust. You know why? Had our yeah. butts handed to us. Yeah. Right? Exactly. These aren't these aren't delusions. These are scars. Yeah, that's right. Right. Exactly. Pain, real pain. So some of these products um, will let you do what's called a gated deploy, which is I, I know this package runs. I've done it in several different environments. I want to put it in production. And so I want to do a gated deploy right before I get to production so that at least one human looks at the database script and, and ensures we're not going to lose any data when we run the script. Cool. Yeah, it's I mean, cool. Yeah. The, the, the products are getting super mature and, and really great. Like right into your CI environment, you can, you know, you can run these database packages. So once a package is kind of built and you know that it's repeatable, you can have your CI server, you know, put it where it needs to be and then notify everybody that the test is ready to, you know, take a look at for user acceptance testing or something like that. And then you can kind of push that along down your pipeline. Um, I don't know if you've done a show yet on Octopus Deploy, but we that have. is... Yeah, we have. Oh, it's so great. Right. It is so great. And, yeah, and what Octopus Deploy essentially is, is it just runs... PowerShell scripts or or any type of scripting engine that you can integrate with it. And it runs it in each environment and it keeps track of those version numbers. So it says, oh, you want to run this um, database package. We can run that in that environment. We're going to version that environment. And then we're going to tell you, you know, green means this is the version that you're on. And, and it just kind of keeps that updated. So if you've got a development pipeline and you want to promote something to the next stage of the pipeline, mm -hmm. Octopus Deploy just makes that super easy to kind of kind of manage. Well, and this is the moment where I get all happy because the, the moment you're using tools that I use to deploy code to also support my database, so it's, it, now it's part of the same pipeline. You know, and I, all right, I'll, I'll admit, I'll let you have tools wrapped around your SQL stuff specifically, but when it comes to actually getting out in the field, getting that package and being able to deploy it in the different environments, I want you to play, right? I don't, I don't want yeah. something new. So I'm Octopus Play, and I'm like, yay, okay, I'm in. Now, it requires you to kind of get good at PowerShell, really. And I think it does. I think to get really good at it, you need to get good at some language. In the, I'm not going to disagree with you, but PowerShell and SQL don't get along. Well, so Redgate has PowerShell objects for deploying their Redgate deployment packages right. into different environments and they're straight PowerShell. So that kind of mm. helps us along. That helps, yeah. And there is the PowerShell tools for SQL Server that aren't installed by default. And when you actually try and install them, they're cranky. But, you know, I've gone through this on Run As Radio a few times as well. We've talked to different folks trying to deal with this. And it's like every time I wanted to get to a reliable deploy that involved deploying SQL Server, I ended up using DML for it. Okay, so if you're comfortable with DML, and I am, I've been, yeah, I love DML, then, you know, we can always go back to like SQL CMD and DML scripts yeah. um, in our deployment process. And you could do but, that in Octopus Deploy too. But that makes me sad. But I think <laughs> it's the thing that we try. 
And I think that's important. I mean, really, when you talk about continuous delivery and you talk about DevOps, um, and the topics kind of overlap in some areas, um, really, you're talking about trust and you're talking about culture. You're talking about kind of changing a full developer environment so that those dark spots we talked about at the beginning of the show, where something we don't like changing, we make that, that's the first thing we change because we know that's where the dragons are that we need to slay. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, so, and, the, and the cornerstone of trust is reliability. And my experience with PowerShell, I haven't played with the Redgate tools, but my experience with PowerShell and SQL Server, not reliable. Yeah. Well, I'd give those guys a fair shake, though, because PowerShell is now, you know, lingua franca for Microsoft Azure. Yes. And no, I'm, and, I'm not angry with PowerShell, guys. I'm angry with the SQL team. <laughs> so <laughs> I have. All right. It, to defend them, Richard, I have used PowerShell to bring up Windows, install SQL, um, add drives, put a database spread across all the drives, um, set up always on um, availability groups, um, create a database spread across those drives, and then mirror or just asynchronously um, do replicate that that database across multiple servers. And I've made the script so that they could just like double click on the script, a ask a couple questions, and then 20 minutes later, this is all set up for them in Azure VMs. So actually, the most difficult piece of that whole thing is getting the PowerShell tools for SQL Server installed. It is they don't install by default. It is that was that you're absolutely right. It was true, but but it worked. It worked great. So, yeah. and it's and it, you know when you talk about real configuration by code, it's that double click. All that stuff's deployed and running. And like, then the teardown scripts. If we need to, yeah, if we need to make it elastic, get it, get it down too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that, that's to get to that level of confidence with database changes too. Like, boy. People talk about continuous deployment as a holy grail, but this is a whole other level. I'm it still really afraid, is. man. <laughs> I'm just I, a developer you know sitting listening to you guys talk, and I'm like, oh, God, even more proof that I shouldn't touch this stuff. <laughs> no, I think you should touch it. It's not proof that you shouldn't touch it. I think that if you're going to have that dark spot, then you're going to be perpetually frustrated. And yeah. You know, that's what's going to give us these databases that have terrible data in it or a ton of null columns or tables nobody uses. And and those things, you know, the reason why we don't have that in code is because we rely on source control. We say, oh, I can delete that function. I can delete that method. I can delete all 15 classes that I'm not using anymore because I know if I need to get it again, I can just go into source control and get it. They're not that's lost. Kind of, but that's yeah, not, not how you, you. So are you going to start putting data into our source control? Oops, well, I okay. dropped the customer table. I can get the schema back. That's in source control. So the problem with large amounts of data is that it makes the comparison um, just so painful. And, and so we can't really go over, you know, 50 gig tables and compare to see if the, it's right or not. Right. It, that'll never be fast. And if it's not fast, then people will stop using source control. So I don't think we'll get to the point where we're putting all the data in source control, but definitely lookup tables like state tables or tax rate tables or things yeah. that have business logic in it. That stuff you can absolutely put in source control now and you should put it there. That's a great and interesting distinction. All of those sort of deterministic number of rows like tax tables and things to have them there just so you, and the biggest reason is not to preserve the data. It's to preserve when things changed. Yeah, so you have a I've history. I've had a, that exact experience where at some point we changed the rules about how we were computing taxes and all those computations are now stored in these records. You're just trying to figure out where did they go wrong and how did they go wrong? So being able to go back to source control and track that down, that is really exciting. Yeah, and what like JIRA number was it attached to or, or yeah. work item number from TFS so that we can go to the decision maker and say, oh, that's why it changed. You said. Find me a blame tool. <laughs> I must locate who to be killed. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And you know what, Carl? You know, fair enough. You're like, oh, this, these, this environment's kind of giving me heartburn. You know what? I just want you to start at the very beginning at source control. And then once you feel really good with that, then move to testing. And yeah. if you stop at source control and testing... Your life will be so much better than it is without it. And then once you feel like you have test coverage and you feel like those tests are reliable and they give you good feedback and they tell you when something breaks, then move on to a CI environment and then kind of mature from there. Like we don't need to like bite this all off in one day. This could be a six month, a year project. Well, there is another option. 
I could just hire Richard to manage the database. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the segue on that, the other option is getting rid of SQL Server. I mean, this is why True. no SQL stuff's become so popular. Yeah. Is it's much more in the hands of the developer to manage it. And a lot more of the stuff is code. Well, and not only that, but NoSQL handles schema changes a lot more gracefully. Right? By basically it's, not having schema. Right. Or by having schema that fails gracefully when you yeah. kind of query it. Right. So, yeah, I, I like that. It, when I give that message to, like I spoke last night at the New York SQL Server user group, and I basically said what you just said in not so many words. And it was like, I just like, I smacked him in the face, na- man. Yeah, I showed up naked to church or something, right? They just wanted to throw me right out. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, Wait we minute. could go there on a Friday yeah. afternoon. Wait a minute. Why are you guys laughing? I do that all the time. <laughs> That's an interesting church you go to there, Carl. <laughs> um, but, you, you know, the, the DBAs that have got their head in the ground thinking everything about NoSQL is evil, they're just mistaken, right? They, there are good things here. And, but part, and part of the reason that it got popular in the first place was that we were being so difficult as DBAs. But it's not the only reason. There are things that NoSQL data stores are really good at. Well, the, the most compelling thing about NoSQL data stores is that if I, okay, let's say that I've got a customer and some orders and order line item, you know, the basic, you know, Northwind problem, right? And, yep. and I, I have that in NoSQL. You know, as a developer, I have an object hierarchy and that object hierarchy, I look at it, and that's what data looks like in my head. And in right. a NoSQL solution, I just say dot save. Yeah. Like, take yeah. that object hierarchy and save it. And then if I want it again, I say, hey, go get that object hierarchy I just had and give it to me. And that's it. Now, in a SQL solution, I have to like split apart the customers and orders and line items and products. And I have to like the order matters, right? I have to save the customer first, and then I have to save the orders. And and if I'm a brand new developer, writing SQL is not easy for me. And even right. using the ORM is kind of like a black box. If I use Entity Framework or, you know, and, I, and then I examine what it's doing under the hood, I can get overwhelmed. I, imagine that I'm like a 25-year-old mobile developer. I just want to write, you know, I want to write, uh, I want to write Tinder. Yeah, imagine ah. I just want to write Tinder. <laughs> and and I want to save some profiles and things. I don't want to have to like peel apart a schema. And even going back to our earlier conversation, when we create schema, we are terrible at predicting the future. Sure. And so this lets me just kind of mature the schema along with me and keep using that save method over and over and over again. And pretty soon my application's looking pretty good and I don't have like these massive dark holes and I and I don't have 50 tables hanging around nobody uses anymore. And I didn't have to like rip apart a complicated object hierarchy and mm-hmm. save it. I just mm-hmm. called one method. And that I tried showing that to the DBAs last night. And I'm with the with the byline like this is why NoSQL is popular. They don't really care about scalability. No. That, mm. Maybe they do. Maybe no, they they've been they've had third normal form pounded them for so long they still believe it's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we did a show ages ago, I think in 2012. Um, it was Keith Brown um, talking about using RavenDB sure. and SQL Server together. Sure. And one of the points he made, which has really resonated with me ever since, is why are you making the customer wait while you arbitrarily decompose that object into rows and columns? Like, don't make them wait. Right. Store it in that document store as is. Let them go. You've got a copy of it. It's safe now. And decompose asynchronously. Yep, it's so true. But um, the argument I've made on DBAs that has really stuck with them is the that copy in RavenDB, that copy of the object, that's actually the truth. That is a copy of the transaction mm. at the moment as it was. Right. Your decomposition is a lie. It's you taking it apart and writing it in different pieces in different places where it could much more easily be changed. Nobody ever modifies an object store. You know, you could just set it as a journal. It's a mem- and so it's got the truth in it. It's a it. memory of a memory. You know what, you know what, Richard, I never really thought of that before, but you're absolutely right. But basically what you're saying is because the business analysts and the DBAs don't understand NoSQL, the developer can trust the data that's in it because nobody's <laughs> going to rip it out from underneath. Right. There's, there's part, that's part of it. But you know, this just the, the reason that well. Keith was still using SQL Server and it's why most people still use SQL Server. It's actually really great at analyzing data. The advantage of third normal form is not, you know, storage per se. It does save disk space back when that mattered, 
But more importantly, it organizes in data that allows you to view it in different directions. If you've got all your orders stored as objects and you want to figure out how many widgets you sold, well, that sucks. But if you've decomposed it into, uh, you know, form and subform tables, then it's much easier to pull out product IDs and, and actually aggregate them. Like that's, and the joke is this is what Ted Codd was thinking about when he made the relational database in the first place. Analysis, not, oh, you know, transactional storage. Hmm. Well, that's absolutely right. And going back to our earlier conversation on culture in the enterprise, our DBMSs make sense because the development team tends to be a choke point. Like if you said, hey, developers, I need a new report or I need some yeah. analysis done. By the time they get around to delivering you anything, the market opportunity is done. And yeah. so these guys deploy you know, teams of analysts that know SQL, they know Transact SQL or, or PL SQL or whatever they're writing in, and they can get to the RDBMS and they can write queries and yeah. they can extract it and they can put it in Excel and they can say, here's your analysis and here's what you're going to do next. And they can do this in like four hours, right? And Yeah, they and have great it, tools. Yeah, they have great tooling. And so the RDBMS makes a lot of sense in the enterprise when there's a significant investment around these BI tools and the analyst culture and, and what but they're The main thing on. is getting the RDBMS out of the transactional chain. The transactional chain uses something fast, light, and journaled. Mm. And, and then, scalable. And, and it's scalable, and, and it still needs to be backed up. It, acid compliance is still important. That must be right. You know, all of those things are still true. And But then asynchronously, we're populating this data store that's built for reporting. You know, for a long time, I was building transactional data stores with SQL Server and then syncing them with a reporting store right. because the querying was so different and the indexing was different. You know, it, it was, but now we're paying for two copies of SQL Server, which is not cheap. Richard, you're and like it, a and SQL it, Server and we're expert. we're doing something bad with SQL Server in the first place. Don't let it do the transactional work. It's not what it's great at. <laughs> you're great on the SQL side, Richard. Are you, you, are oh, yeah. you sure you're not a SQL Server MVP? Shh. No, it <laughs> doesn't want to be. <laughs> and, you know, I, you know I've, that... I'm a performance tuning guy, right? I'm still an ASP.NET yeah. MVP, but my job was to figure out where the performance bottleneck was and fix it. So oddly enough, when you're trying to make stuff go fast, especially back then, <laughs> there's a lot of time in the database. Yeah. So this NoSQL topic lets me segue into one of my favorite topics, which is DocumentDB, which is just a topic that I absolutely love. I, have you done any shows on DocumentDB? No, yeah, it's just... on my list of shows. Do we just did a show recently with Julie exactly. Lerman, which she talked touched on it a little bit. Right. How how quickly can I come back as a guest and talk about DocumentDB? I think that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, we should probably make it a separate show. We're already at an hour, but yeah. give me your your one minute of what you love about DocumentDB. Well, so it is a JSON document store that dot save with my JSON data and my object hierarchy that I get, right? Nice. And the thing I the thing I love about it is it's a Microsoft Azure platform as a service. Right. And so I can say, give me a document DB, and five minutes later I'm saving all my JSON into it. And and if I need to scale it, it's literally a sliding bar. I just oh. say, give me a whole bunch more machines here. It's all SSD, so it's super fast I.O. You know, a programmer like me could get used to that real quick. Oh, really <laughs> quick. And it's auto-indexed, and the index control is pretty tight. And the one of the two features I love about DocumentDB, one is um, you can control your consistency model. So you get to, you know, it's not just like eventual consistency only. You can tighten it up if you need to. Right. And the se second thing I like about it is that there's a SQL language interpreter over it that lets you retrieve specific documents and using where clauses and joins and things like that. So nice. Yeah, that's great. And there's a there's actually a document. There's an EF SQL. provider, right? Well, yeah, I don't Julie know said about there that. was a Julie said there was an EF provider so that she could do uh, that kind of stuff with EF. If What's I remember correctly, do you remember that? her saying that, Richard, or am I losing it? Yeah, I'm not sure. But All do, right. do you mean? What's funny to me about saying that is I don't really see the need of an ORM in a JSON document store. I don't mm -hmm. really think we need to translate anything. And mm -hmm. so I'm not sure Entity Framework would be a layer I don't even know that I'd bother with. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but, sure. Why not? I mean, if you can do your, your SQL-like queries, you know, with the – is it a link provider then? Um, yeah, yeah. You could use link. Yep. You're just – basically, you're hydrating objects and you're using link to objects to pull stuff out. Love it. What do you, yeah. Why would I need EF? Cool. Yeah, it's great. And and that SQL Playground, there's a tool online that if you wanted to learn the DocumentDB version of SQL, you can kind of learn it. And 
Yeah, I would love to talk about it for an hour. I could talk about it for a lot longer than that. All right, well, that's going to well, be another show because we're out of time. Yeah, no problem. Well, uh, Ike, thanks very much. It's been, wow, it's been awesome. I mean, you know, as scared as I am, I, I do have faith that guys like you are out there, you know, telling me it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Very cool. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a